Hi, I'm Mike Kozer, and this is a special opening day edition of the Lost Ballparks podcast. Now, let's follow the Redbirds. This is Bob Delaney speaking to you from Yankee Stadium in New York, where, at long last, we might say, opening day is at hand. Boy, this is the ideal place to be today. All you need is a little suntan lotion. The Mets meet the Pittsburgh Pirates here at Forbes Field. Lindsey Nelson, Bob Murphy, and I are on hand to bring you all the action. From Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. For this opening day, 1969, and what a spectacular day. We mentioned it before, temperature 70 degrees, beautiful clear skies. It's the kind of a day when you're a ball player, you say, brother, give them all to me just like this. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shaper or two throughout the evening. There is something magical about opening day. Opening day brings hope. The belief that no matter who your team is, this year you've got a chance. The smell of hot dogs and cracker jacks and freshly cut grass. There truly is nothing like opening day. Today I'm talking to Michael Ortman, who attended 50 consecutive opening days beginning in 1970. He's got a brand new book that's out right now, available at barnesandnoble.com. It's called Opening Day 50 for 50. One fan, one game. A Half Century of Baseball Stories. Now, look, I will tell you, I started reading this book two nights ago, and I cannot put it down. If you love baseball history, this book is a must-read. It is such a rich narrative with incredible details about the game's highlights, baseball's all-time great players, and the history of some of these old lost ballparks that Michael Orman attended. I've been held captive by every single page, and I think you will, too. By the way, there's a link to the book in the podcast episode's description today for you to check out. Hello, Michael Orman. Hello, Mike. Really appreciate you coming on today. There's so much I want to get to. You grew up listening to WWDC 1260 AM. WWDC. The voices of Shelby Whitfield and Ron Mancheen bringing you Washington Senators baseball each night. Swings and chops one to Hondo at first. He's up with it. Flips it to Bosman for the second straight time. Sims has retired three to one. I love the opening pages of your book where you talk about what it was like listening to those guys long after you were tucked in each night? Well, I had a bedtime. I guess it was around 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, whatever, but the games weren't over yet. So I remember taking that little black transistor radio. It was square about this big and had two little knobs on it, and I could put it under my pillow, had it down low, so Mom and Dad didn't know I was listening to Shelby and Ron in the 1971. Tony Roberts joined the team, and uh, it was just keeping me connected in real time to my heroes. It was the only way I could do it. I remember doing that, too. I grew up in Cleveland, and so I uh, went to sleep each night listening to games being broadcast from Municipal Stadium. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, because now, I mean, kids look at you like you're crazy, like they've got access to so much content on their phones. And I honestly believe that it, it was better the way that we had it. It forced our imaginations to paint the pictures for us as we lay in bed and, you know, thought about what it looked like and what it felt like to be at the ballpark that night. Well, and, and this book is about stories. And it, the great broadcasters of those days, and even the great ones today, are storytellers. Because baseball has a pace that requires them to fill these gaps and tell stories and paint images with words. And the best of the best, some of them you've already had on this podcast, are just are wonderful. And in my opinion, one of the all-time greats at doing that was Vin Scully. Well, what have you been doing while we were away on the road through the state of Pennsylvania? You have a nice Memorial Day weekend and a big holiday? Hope you did. And I certainly hope you'll be making your plans to pay us a visit. Come on out to the ballpark. Be home for a while now, and the entire West will come storming in. 
And the highlight invasions, of course, by Cincinnati and Milwaukee. So we'll be looking forward to seeing you out here at the ballpark. I mean, Vince Coley, it was just poetry. So your first taste of Major League Baseball was August 9th, 1969 at RFK Stadium. What do you remember about that game? I guess it was, it was the Senators versus the Pilots, right? That's the first game I remember. I probably went to games before that, but I remember that one in part because I still have a photograph. It's up on our website. Remembering it was autograph day and the lines to get the big stars like Frank Howard and Dick Bossman were too long. And there's been a great debate about who that picture is that I'm trying to get an autograph one. I think it was Schellenbach, but some people think it was Tim Cullen. Regardless, I had friends there. I was on the field. I was about this high compared to them and just reaching up and getting their their autographs. uh, Just a wonderful memory. And then during the game, Frank Howard, my hero of that era, who traded in his number nine so Ted Williams could have it. Number 33, Frank Howard. Ted Williams, by the way, was the manager of the Senators. That's correct. That's right. And when Ted Williams arrived in Washington, Hondo gave up his jersey number so Ted could have it. Anyway, Frank Howard hit a home run that day that this little boy thought was the greatest thing ever. And along comes a jolly giant from Washington they call the Capitol Punisher. Frank Howard just about puts them into orbit. He hit 17 homers by the end of May. In fact, when they restored uh, RFK for baseball in 2005, they went the extra mile and painted the seats in the upper deck where Frank Howard hit home runs. Have you ever seen the Frank Howard Brute 33 commercial from 1971? Brute 33 has done the job for me. Yeah, I would think it'd be great for anybody else. Brute 33 and a first run. That's my number. I don't know. Maybe these people are trying to tell me something. you got to <laughs> Google it. Oh, it's so great. Frank Howard, was he was a legend. He was. He also did a, a chocolate milk commercial. I can't remember what brand it was, but he, he was very visible at the time, but he was so down to earth. It's so nice and pleasant. Still is. Well, you spent opening days with your dad from 1970 to 1978. And then again, I think in 1983, he was not a big baseball guy, as you talk about in your book. You said in the book that he had no interest really in baseball. He was more about big events than the actual game. Okay. Which brings me to the story of your dad, Frank Ortman, attending Game 5 of the 1956 World Series. Hi, everybody. Once again, from Yankee Stadium in New York, this is Bob Wolf saying hello to your host, the Gillette Safety Razor Company. Soon, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Yankees will take the field for the fifth game in this exciting World Series. You got to share this story. It, he told it so often it had to be true, But because I have no idea why Dad would have been in New York, except Mom grew up there. But he was there. And as we know, Don Larson is pitching, now we know in, history, back in hindsight, that he pitched a perfect game. A perfect performance by Don Larson. But Dad proudly stood up in Yankee Stadium, two outs in the ninth inning. Dale Mitchell up there with two away in the top of the ninth. And proclaims, we want to hit. You don't do that. Oh, my gosh. It had to be the beer talking. I mean, imagine if the pinch hitter had gotten a hit and the perfect game is broken up. He'd have been pummeled right there in the middle of Yankee Stadium. Oh, yeah. He doesn't get out. He doesn't get out of Yankee Stadium alive with that. Oh, my gosh. That's so great. Your streak of 50 consecutive opening day games began in April 1970 at RFK. Watching your Washington Senators, as we talked about, managed by Ted Williams, take on Al Kaline and the Detroit Tigers. Is that right? That's right. Did it start off as your dad, like, hey, let's make this a streak. Let's do this every year. Or was it at the beginning stages, just sort of casual, like, hey, let's just go to this game. Very casual. Um, As I said in the book, dad was a big event guy. And in Washington, D.C., there were plenty of big events like presidential inaugurals. And the opening day of the baseball season was as big as it got. Uh, 4,000 fans slept out overnight to buy tickets for that opening game. 
And the Senators I mean, had a winning season the prior year, uh, which was great under Ted Williams, but opening day was a big sold out game. And I think dad was more interested in taking me to a big game and knew that baseball was my interest. It was a big age gap between us. I'm the youngest of six kids. Um, and that's, it took me out of school and we went to the game and I, I was thrilled to get to go to the Senators opening day. Right. And we did it again the following year. And you're how old at that time? Nine. Was it 71 that Reggie Jackson, Vita Blue and the Oakland A's come to RFK? They do. Vita Blue right. got shelled on opening day at RFK. Yeah. He got beat up pretty bad that day. But then you mentioned that, uh, he went on to have a great year at age 21. In fact, Vita Blue started the 1971 All-Star game at Tiger Stadium. How do you describe Vita Blue? I think one way you can describe him, a long, loose arm, a great athlete, tremendous football player in high school. He then went on to have a great season. Yeah. So that opening day in 1971, not only do you get to see Vita Blue, but you also get to see Reggie Jackson. There was another side story. So the Rinaldi's Cleaners, my dad's office was up over Rinaldi's Cleaners, Northwest Washington, D.C. And the way it worked in those days is the teams would send their uniforms after the night game, Friday night, to Rinaldi's, and he would launder them and send them back Saturday afternoon for the game. One wow. Saturday morning, dad took me down to Rinaldi's when Mr. Rinaldi said, here, you want to try this on, son? And he puts Frank Howard's jersey on me. I was probably <laughs> 10. And I'm, look, I'm 61 now. I wasn't very tall. I'm not tall now. And I wasn't tall then. The jersey was bigger than I was. And Reggie Jackson's. And if no remember, way. Yeah. Reggie Jackson's game-worn jersey. <laughs> Frank Howard's game-worn jersey. Oh, in my the, gosh. What a great day, memory. In those days, the A's jerseys were vests. Like, so I have the gray vest. The, the only reason you knew I was in there was because my arms went out through the, the right. holes. The jersey. <laughs> so your dad, what a great opportunity as a kid. I would have wanted to be down there every time there was laundry coming in. Yeah, let me see, <laughs> let me, let me see what you got, you know? <laughs> oh, and it went full circle. So Phil Wood, who's a great baseball historian, broadcaster, now retired, has a collection of old jerseys, including a 1969 Frank Howard jersey. And during the course of this book project, he loaned it to me down to Nationals Park, where there is a statue of Frank Howard outside. And there's a picture of me wearing the number 33 jersey, looking up at my hero. Ah, just what an opportunity and what a great memory. So the streak that started in 1970 almost ended as quickly as it began, because by the end of the 1971 season, your hometown Washington Senators made the announcement that they were moving to Texas. It hits you with kind of a sudden jolt when you first look out on the field and at the uniform. Rangers, it says. The Texas Rangers, there really is such an entity. Okay, and that's devastating for a kid. Look, I grew up in Cleveland, and when the Browns left for Baltimore, I was heartbroken. Even uh, ESPN's Kenny Mayne, who was on season one of the podcast, he grew up in Seattle and spent an entire season welcoming and growing to love his hometown Seattle Pilots, only to see them fly east of Milwaukee. We'll never regret all those Seattle Pilots days and nights. I imagine you were just devastated. I was, and I cried myself to sleep that night. I was at the last Senators game with my dad. Still had the ticket stubs. are up on the website. So Boz will try and wind up the Major League Baseball season, at least for 1971, hopefully not forever. And I wanted to go out on the field at, at the end, like everybody else, and tear up some turf to have a, something to hold on to from my Senators, but dad wouldn't let me. So, But I'm not sure you realize how much you miss it. Until, in our case, 33 years passed right. before we got it back. And in 2005, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Well, And your dad, though, he wasn't about to let the streak die. What did he say to you at the start of the next season? Like, you probably thought, okay, well, that's it. Like, there's no opening day. Was the farthest thing from my mind. So the interesting twist is that 72 was the first player strike. And so the start of the season was delayed a couple of weeks. And the players got, as we now know, binding arbitration out of that, that strike. 
And opening day because of weather in Baltimore got pushed to Sunday afternoon. So as best I can recall, dad said something like, want to go to opening day? And I, hey, dad, my team is in Texas. Where are you thinking, dad? And he's yeah. in Baltimore. And I said, what? What? Ball? Well, where's that? <laughs> so we had to get on a map and figure out how to get there. And it was tickets were plentiful because the fans were pretty angry and the weather was pretty bad. Fans were angry because of the strike. Brooks Robinson got booed at Memorial Stadium that day. How is that possible? I know, exactly, because he was the player rep and the fans were mad. All right. And I guess only, what, like 13,000 showed up that day? That's right. In fact, Brooks, after the game, said, oh, they weren't booing me. That was just they were cheering for Boog Powell, who was on deck or who was before me. <laughs> if you had to lose a team, the Senators, and pick up a new one, the Orioles, that seems like a pretty good deal because the Orioles, with Brooks Robinson, as we talk about, and Jim Palmer and Boog Powell, the O's had just played in the previous two World Series. They won in 1970. Lost in 7 and 71 to Clemente and the Pirates. But that, I mean, it's not any, you know, no kid wants to trade their hometown team for any team. If you had to pick up a new team. And I didn't that quickly. I, my heart stuck with the Texas Rangers. I had to stay with Frank Howard. Right. I couldn't just trade in Frank Howard for Boog Powell, oh, although they were similar size. I had picked out the sporting news every week, as so many of our age did. And you huddle the box scores, and I would clip out the Texas Rangers box scores, and I would keep them in a binder for a few years. But one by one by one. You know, Frank Howard goes off to Detroit, Dick Bosman goes to Cleveland, and eh, I, I, it dwindled by the time I got to college. But I wasn't exactly an Oriole fan until the 80s, uh, but we did go religiously to opening day because dad wanted to go to baseball. And, you know, some baseball is better than no baseball. So that's yeah. how we got through the 70s. Something that jumped out at me while reading your book is the number of all-time greats that you were able to see each year. Al Kaline, Jim Palmer, Brooks and Frank Robertson, Frank Howard, we talk about Carl Yastrzemski, Carlton Fisk, Reggie Jackson. I mean, I think you ended up seeing more than 40 future Hall of Fame players and managers during the streak. So many great players along the way. Is there one that you wanted to see more than any others or one besides Frank Howard that really jumped out at you that you were happy you got to see? Cal Ripken, year after year. Yeah. Um, Cal was my opening day partner for 19 years. Right. <laughs> and, and he never let us down, ever. I mean, yeah. not just not just showing up to play every day, but Cal was so great as a player and as a member of the community. That definitely top of the list. And and playing in the East Division, both when I was rooting for the Orioles and when now with the Nationals, you get those opening day matchups on the mound that are usually, you know, Max Scherzer against Jacob Degrom or or things of that. Mike Mussina against Roger Clemens. Right. Those kind of matchups on the mound for things you look forward to. Okay, so 1974, you and your dad are watching the Orioles defeat the Tigers at Memorial Stadium. And after the game, you're both walking toward 33rd Street and you run into Orioles legend Boog Powell. How did this happen? We were lost. <laughs> Baltimore's full of one-way streets. And yeah, Dad wasn't exactly, he was directionally challenged and I wasn't even driving yet. So yeah. you've got one-way streets going this way and you can't just retrace your steps. So we see this guy and I, I must say he was just a big person. I wasn't sure who it was at that moment and neither did Dad. But you go over and you realize, wait a minute, this is Boog Powell and he's getting into this big car could not have been nicer. Wow. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, these Orioles might not be so bad. Maybe I can <laughs> maybe I can root for the Rangers in the West and the Orioles in the East. That'll be fine. And my love of the Orioles was starting to take shape thanks to Boot Bell. Red Sox legend Tony Conigliaro was hit in the face by a pitch in 67 at Fenway Park. This eye, bruised as it is, discolored as it is, has been the cause of terrible concern throughout one of this nation's greatest cities, Boston, Massachusetts. The eye belongs to Tony C, as they call him, Tony Conigliaro, the brilliant young slugging outfielder of the Boston Red Sox. By 23, he had become the youngest American League player to reach 100 home runs. There's a drive by Conigliaro, and it is out of here. What a bomb he is. Conigliaro hits a home run his first time at bat at Fenway Park. 
But the injury was obviously devastating, and his eyesight, as you can imagine, deteriorated. So he ends up retiring after the 71 season. But in 75, at age 30, he announced that he was making a comeback. And you were at Memorial Stadium, opening day 75, when Tony gave it one more try. I can imagine back in Boston listening to that game on the radio, there was not a try in New England because Tony was attempting his second comeback and everybody was rooting for him. Um, and he hits that home run in the fifth. Drive to left center, Blair's back, and it is home run for Canigliaro. Tony Canigliaro has hit a two-run home run in the 10th inning, and the Red Sox take a 4-2 lead. Oh, boy, what a story. Carl Yastrzemski hits a home run in the 12th to win the game, ultimately. Tony's comeback did not last long, but that opening day has to be one that fans in Boston cling to. And man, just a, a career cut short and just like one of those yeah. guys that you you look back in history and think, what if he could have been one of the all-time greats? He was the Bryce Harper of his day, meaning the 100 home runs at a very young age. Yeah. Career trajectory was terrific and cut short, you said. So in 77, Mike, your former team, the Washington Senators, now the Texas Rangers, are back <laughs> at Memorial Stadium for opening day against the O's. And it's a big day for you. For one, you just got your driver's license. So That's you right. drove you and your dad to the ballpark in your 74 Pontiac Granville convertible. That's right. And by the end of the day, you were also famous, as you say in the book, a banner day. It was. Well, in the 70s, it was very common for fans to bring banners to games and hang them off some part of the stadium. Now they're forbidden, et cetera. But I had tried it twice before. I tried it at the 76 All-Star Game. I tried it at the 73 Super Bowl um, that I went to with dad. But by 77, I make this very simple banner with two words, go Senators, exclamation point. And I hang it off the mezzanine, hoping that maybe Toby Hera, who's one of the still remaining senators playing for the Texas Rangers that day, will see my banner. Right. And you have to climb over. I had to climb over the railing, get on the photo deck and put it there. Can you imagine doing that today? Oh, there's no way. They'd haul you off in handcuffs. Right. Seriously. So the next day, I open up the Washington Evening Star newspaper. And there it is above the fold, almost as big as the front page of the paper. My banner. Uh, yeah, a lot of people saw it that way. Yeah, banner day for sure. All right, so <laughs> April 10th, 1979, you're at Comiskey Park, and the White Sox were so horrible that day that owner Bill Veck, who built the exploding scoreboard and had so many other great innovations, said what to the fans of Chicago? We stunk up the joint so bad, so yeah. bad. Please come back tomorrow. And you don't have to pay. It's free. He'd let everybody come back. <laughs> All right. So what were your impressions of Comiskey? By the way, you were there on the 60th anniversary of the Black Sox scandal, which happened in 1919. One of my editors reminded me of that as I was going through it. He said, you realize that 1979 was the 60th anniversary of the Black Sox scandal, but that was the year I started going to Comiskey. I went for three opening days there. Yeah. Um, My first impressions were, wow, this is very different. RFK and Memorial Stadium in Baltimore were both, you know, the cookie cutter shared stadiums between football and baseball. And they were in residential neighborhoods near the water, kind of nondescript, but Comiskey had life and and personality and bars and traditions. And this was pretty cool. And I was able to drink beer at that point. Nancy Faust, who was <gasps> on season one of the podcast, uh, one of the all-time great ballpark organists, led Harry Carey in singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch. And this was your first taste of that in person, oh, right? Right. Okay, Nancy! To the crowd, buy me some peanuts and crack for Jack. I 
Nancy, you had a whole repertoire of music that you knew what to expect and when, and you stand up on your seat, and I would dance to ring run around Sue. Ah, that was just so different than well, anything right. I'd seen in Baltimore or in Washington. Uh, was it this game that there was a rain delay, or was, there, was it a future game at Comiskey? Um, so I, I, throw, I throw in the book a bonus chapter in 81. Okay, yeah. Because there was a reopener at right. the end of the midseason strike. Yeah. And that had multiple rain delays, lots of beer. Um, Nancy was in her prime. Because she was just playing great music that night. And then ultimately, there was a great comeback right after she played Na Na Hey Hey Goodbye. And the White Sox won at the end of the game early and said, let's get out of here. The White Sox beat the Yankees that night. Man, I wish there would have been some way that they could have kept part of Comiskey around either the grandstand or the scoreboard or something. You look at that ballpark in particular and you think about all of the players that came through Comiskey, the history of that ballpark. And it's just sad that it just kind of went the way of a record. I get, look, we want to upgrade. We want to bring in the newest, coolest, whatever. And it seems like there could have been something to save some part of that ballpark. I agree. I mean, when they moved, they opened Camden Yards, at least they picked up home plate from Memorial Stadium and drove it downtown. Right. They, and even and even now, when you look at Memorial Stadium or that the, the site of that, uh, Cal Ripken Jr. Uh, and the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation built a, a new park in a field with home plate in the exact spot facing that white house in center field. I love that kind of stuff. They, they, they preserved it. All right. So in 1982, the streak continued for you at Wrigley Field. And this was Harry Carey's First opening day with the Cubs. The 1982 home season of the Chicago Cubs is about ready to get underway. As you go through the book, there are so many of these stories where I can just, I'm like, I kept saying to myself last night when I'm reading it, oh my gosh, he was there for that. He was there for that. <laughs> well, my, the only reason the streak continued when I got to college, bear in mind, I get there, I figure it's over because the nearest baseball team is hundred miles away, but I have a friend who's got the two important things in life, if love for baseball, a car. So we get to, to Comiskey. I fall in love with Harry Carey. Now Harry goes to the north side. I say, Craig, let's go. He said, I'm not going to Wrigley Field. I didn't understand that was forbidden in Chicago, <laughs> right, I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was Harry. He was White Sox. Okay. So I find another friend who's a Cubs fan, and we go. It was cold. Oh, it was so oh, cold. Oh, yeah. Okay, so listen. I, this, ever, had, this has to be the coldest baseball game during the streak, and maybe one of the coldest baseball games right. ever. What, what was the game time temperature? I forget. It was... Uh, 34 degrees or something. 34 degrees. Crazy. And it had snowed previously, so there were actually piles of snow on bleachers in the state, like you could have a snowball right. fight. They did have a snowball fight. They were throwing snowballs on the field. It was it was Chicago. The guys who worked on this field certainly deserve all the credit in the world. Some 200 of them spent the whole night and the whole morning sweeping and carrying snow off the green, as it were. Look, it was open day in Chicago. This kind of stuff happened almost all the time. I only had one Good weather opening day in Chicago. So looking back over the 50 opening days, what would it be? What was the one that stood out to you more than any other? It has to be the return of baseball to Washington in 2005. Mm. I don't think you realize how much you miss something until you get it back. 
Right. And there was not a dry eye in the house that night. There were tears of joy and memories coming back from people that had missed it and were great to have it back. Yeah. It is such a great read. If you love baseball history, you're going to love this book. It's opening day, 50 for 50. One fan, one game, a half century of baseball stories. If you go to the notes section of this podcast episode, there's a direct link to buy the book on the Barnes & Noble website, or you can just go to barnesandnoble.com to pick it up and uh, you will not regret it. Our website is openingday5050.com. It's really a companion website for the book. By that, I mean, we didn't want to make the book more expensive for fans by adding a page for every box score or a bunch of personal pictures. But if we put a QR code at the end of every chapter to invite people to go do that on their own, they can go on the same kind of exploration that I did and had so much fun putting this book together. It's all there on openingday5050.com. Mike, I think I probably have read 40, 50 baseball books in the last couple of years, and this one is right there at the top of the list. So good. I appreciate that very much. And we went the extra mile to put an index in the back of this book because there are almost 750 names of people and places in the back of that. So that's a lot of density. We have literally just scratched the surface of the details and the history and and just the great background stories that you uh, write about in this book. So I encourage people to pick it up and just, and, you know, spend an afternoon diving into baseball history. It is, it is well worth it. Thank you, Mike. There really is something so magical about opening day. Today, doesn't matter what team you root for, we've all got a little bit of hope. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast. Season two will premiere next week with Cal Ripken Jr. A quick reminder, Our Patreons have access to that premiere episode today. If you've been enjoying the podcast and would like to elevate your experience with early access to each episode, limited edition merchandise, premium video clips from interviews, behind-the-scenes details, footage, and a whole lot more, visit LostBallparks.com. Special thanks to our producers, Mike Dunn, Xavier Guerra, Manny Zavlakis, and, of course, Mike Orman. Have a great week, and thank you for supporting the Lost Ballparks podcast.